Our guest this week, Julie Briggs, teaches foster parents how to care for their traumatized children. But she and her husband, Alan, adopted two children from Ethiopia with their own traumatic stories as well. Julie shares some of their stories, including the epic tantrum that changed her parenting forever. The Legendary Marriage Podcast begins now. If you're feeling more like roommates than soulmates, it's time for the Legendary Marriage Podcast. Hello there, Fremily. It's Danielle and Justin. Hello. And we're listening to episode 98 of the Legendary Marriage Podcast. So whether you've been listening for a long time or this is your first time, welcome to the show. Hey, before we get into this week's episode, I'm super excited to hear this. Uh, We've got a couple quick announcements. Actually, just one. Uh, We are zeroing in very quickly on our 100th episode of the podcast. Woohoo! Yay! Did you think we'd make it to 100? Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. You did? Yes, absolutely. Um, And to celebrate, we want to challenge you, our listeners, to help other couples have conversations that matter by sharing your favorite episode with your friends. You can do do it any way you want, but... Grab the episode and share it out on Facebook or Twitter or, or wherever. Um, but uh, invite some people to come and listen to your favorite episode and uh, be a part of the family. What's your favorite episode, honey? Any episode where you make me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and who's your favorite kid? Uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> I know you can't choose just one. No. All right. So that's it for announcements. Yes. We are moving on. So like this we, is episode 98 and our guest today is counselor to foster parents, Julie Briggs and Julie's sharing with us the story of growing her family through adoption and how she cared for her kids after they'd gone through many forms of trauma. Uh, And she's also going to share with us some of the ways to better connect with our own families. I love it. She's got so much wisdom in this one. All right, let's get to our conversation with Julie Briggs. So we are so excited to have Julie Briggs back on the show. A while back, she was on the podcast with her husband, Alan, and they shared their couple's story. So Julie is she's got a master's degree in counseling and she works with a foster care agency where she teaches about how to build attachment when your kids have gone through trauma. This is such a big subject that, you know, Justin and I don't know a whole lot about this. So we wanted to bring an expert on the show like Julie. And there are things, even if you don't have someone in your family that have gone through a big trauma. There are lots of things that you'll take away from this episode just as a parent, as a family member, as a spouse on how to deal with those really hard things when they come up. Welcome to the show, Julie. Hi, thanks for having me back. Yeah, yeah. You're uh, in a very small club, a very, very small club of the repeaters Yes. We're we're, we're uh, up on a hundred episodes here and we've only had a couple repeaters. And so you are one of them, girl. Exciting. Well, I'm honored. <laughs> okay. So how did you get into being interested of really helping these kids and parents and families that have dealt with trauma in their past? 
Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it started with our own story of when I was a teenager, I spent a decent amount of time in my teens and early twenties, uh, traveling to Russia and Africa and working with kids who lived in orphanages and just seeing this um, level of desperation in their eyes when they look at you like, I am a stranger they have known for three days, and yet they are hugging me and they are begging me to take them home with them. And it just breaks your heart and you see this desperation of everybody needs someone in their life who is crazy about them. And these kids didn't have that. And so they craved it so deeply from strangers. So when we decided to adopt... Which can uh, be dangerous, actually, if you kind of yeah. think about it. Yeah, very much so. That's why you see so many kids who have experienced trauma or neglect or anything like that, who reach out and have you know really unhealthy, desperate behaviors later on in life because they didn't get that assurance of an adult's love when they were growing up. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like you were, your heart was breaking for these kids at, you know, even though you were 17 and obviously having kids of your own, was that even a thought at that time? I mean, you're a teenager. Right. Well, it planted in my mind, the idea of maybe me adopting someday, but I also knew the reality of you have a honeymoon period where everything is great. And then you got to deal with the trauma, their trauma, your trauma from trying to parent them. And, uh, it can, it can get overwhelming for sure, but just That's a really good point. Because if you're thinking of this, like if you're putting on your parent hat here, I know you teach parents that are, mm-hmm. that have children that have gone through trauma. Does it like almost reactivate in parents trauma from their past, if they've experienced something, when they welcome a kid into their home that has been traumatized? It certainly can. And that's why I think we have to be really careful to be mindful of ourselves and our own needs and our own experiences. If you as a child felt abandoned or unimportant or whatever in your family, and then you reach out and adopt a child or even have a biological child who is maybe just built very differently from you. And you don't, you aren't receiving from them the level of, you know, physical love or attachment you were hoping or planning on getting. Mm -hmm. If they're more distant, then that could re-trigger in you some of your old, well, you know, I must be worthless because as as a child, I felt this way. And now my kids are rejecting me. And so I think you really have to have a strong sense of self or just like some go-to support or, you know, self-care measures because, and even just being able to step back and recognize the situation for what it really is. I often tell people so many times our children's behavior is not about us. And yet we make it about us. We make it about us all the time. You can have a kid having a massive tantrum. They could even be, you know, you're not my mom or you can't tell me what to do or you can't control me. And we get all defensive and angry. We're making it about us. My children are just young. They're very young, four and six, but I've already experienced the mom, I don't like you. I don't Mm -hmm. need you. 
if you even disappeared, I don't know if I'd know, you know, I mean, that kind of stuff. Which hurts, like, right? Oh, because I feel yeah. like if I would let me, that would really, really hurt. But I know yes. that you haven't eaten and you haven't slept and you, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to put that in perspective. But right. if I would let it out, ouch, that really hurts. Okay. So you visited these countries where these kids are just like crying out for help and for love. And so if we jump forward just a little bit, how did you and Alan make the decision to adopt children that... Did you know that they had a traumatic past? Did you know you know, some of their story when y'all signed up to say, you know, yeah, they're going to be my kids? Right. When I think those earlier experiences in my life led me to want to adopt... I had a well-intentioned friend uh, in my late teens who attended some of those trips with me. And I remember she had lost her father and I had come from a really amazing family, felt unconditionally loved. My parents had a great relationship with each other, you know, a fun, loving household. And because of her trauma, she could relate to those kids better. And I remember her saying to me once, uh, you know, again, well-intentioned, she wasn't trying to be mean, but Julie, how do you feel like you can help these kids? You don't know what they're going through. Um, you have this great family. So how can you, you know, help these kids who have no family or were abused or whatever? And I really thought about that. And that really sat with me because in my mind, I felt like, no, I do have something to give to them. Uh, but I can't relate. At the time, I couldn't relate. And so I really felt like the message I was receiving in my heart was, you can only give what you have, right? And God gave me, I just happened to be blessed enough to grow up in the kind of family that I think everyone was intended to grow up in, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone should have, you know, a mom and dad who have a loving, stable relationship with each other. And there's fun and joy and unconditional love in the home and laughter. Like that is the ideal, right? That's what everyone should have. And so the message I kind of received was, I got that. And now I have a responsibility to give that to someone who might not have had it otherwise. Right. And you had a good, a wonderful example shown for you. So you have all this bank of, I know what this looks like. I know what the possibility is. I know what um, a wonderful, loving family could be like for you. And I can give that to you. Where. I'm sure your friend had other gifts that, you know, they, yeah, had, they had, she had a richer, deeper perspective of exactly what they were going through. So mm-hmm. she had that, um, but she didn't maybe have some of those strengths that you did of the wonderful examples of how you could just, you know, pull yeah. some of those tools out of your pocket that you don't even know that you have as a parent. I find that so interesting the tools that you can bring out as a parent that you just soaked in as a mm-hmm. kid from having loving parents as, that you're like, kid, Oh, I have skills. <laughs> like I didn't yeah. know it. As a kid, you have no idea how hard parenting actually is. Sure. So you think your parents' life is just a vacation. They just, they get to go to work and they get to pick out all the groceries and they get to <laughs> stay up late and their life is awesome. And it's, you know, so hard being a kid. Oh, but so I, when we decided to adopt, I, I wanted, that's what I wanted. I wanted to provide home and family to children who might not have had it otherwise. 
So that's why we decided to adopt. And side note, because a lot of people I think are curious when they see my family, you know, we have four children and the older two are adopted and they are biological siblings with each other. Oh, okay. And then I birthed the younger two. And I think oftentimes when people see a family like ours, where they can tell there is an adoption because our oldest two children are African-American and my husband and I are Caucasian. Right. Um, There is automatically this assumption that, you know, we certainly must have gone through infertility and then we decided to adopt. And after we adopted, then we were magically able to have biological children. Then you were able to relax. Right. And And I can tell you exactly why. My air quotes of relax. Can you tell I have a little bit of injury around there? (laughs) Part of my trauma. The worst thing to say to somebody struggling with infertility is, oh, if you just relax or just adopt. Have a glass of wine. But here's why that assumption bothers me. I did not go through infertility, but I don't care if people think I went through infertility, like that does not bother me, but it's the idea behind, oh, so you took in these poor orphans and then God gave you what you really wanted, which was biological children. Like that is the assumption behind that statement that, oh, you must've adopted. And then God blessed you with biological children. No, we adopted first before having biological children very much on purpose because we were like, we're never going to have more time and energy and money to devote to these kids who have come from a hard place. We might as well do it first. And I also wanted our adopted children to have that ownership of being the oldest in the family. So when my younger son says something about well, I came from mommy's tummy and you didn't, my older son can say, yeah, but I was before you. (laughs) So so it was important to us that they kind of had that, you know, ownership in the family. That's really cool. So tell us the story of the adoption of the older siblings. Yeah. So we really thought through lots of different options and we ended up landing and wanting to adopt from Ethiopia. This was back in 2010. And at first I was hesitant about Ethiopia because I don't like doing things that everybody else is doing. And at the time, everyone was adopting from Ethiopia. So I thought, oh, I'll adopt from any other country, but I don't want to do Ethiopia. And then I found out there at the time, there was a reason why everyone was adopting from Ethiopia. That was the smoothest, one of the smoothest programs at the time. And other places were taking longer. You didn't know for sure if it would work out. Um, and you know, we finally did just have a piece in, okay, I need to get over myself and I just want to move forward with what I feel like my family's being led to do. So we decided to adopt two children partially so that we could keep siblings together. And also because, you know, my husband and I being Caucasian and our children being Ethiopian, we, we didn't want them to be the only person of color in the family. So that's why we decided to to adopt two. Might as well rip off the band-aids. We got no kids. Why not have two instead of <laughs> instead of one? Um, so we we originally said we wanted two kids between the ages of zero and five, and just left it very open at that. And then when we got our referral, it was for our daughter and son. And and the paperwork originally said she was four and a half. Uh, when we got there to pick him up, the paperwork said she was five and a half. 
And then by the time we got home, it was very obvious that she was older than that. She had already lost multiple teeth. She was, you know, so we ended up changing her birth year to reflect her being six and a half. But I'm okay with the snafu on the paperwork because if her correct age had been on the paperwork, we likely would not have gotten them as our referral because we said zero to five. So it all worked out in the end. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting. Do you think you think it was just a paperwork snafu or they like, oh no, I feel like these kids really need to get adopted. And if we put that yeah. she's older, then they won't take her. Some people write down that they're younger, thinking that will make kids more adoptable. Um, and also it's just in Ethiopia, dates don't matter as much to people. They operate on a different calendar. So it's actually, I don't know, the year 2010 or 11 or something like that over there right now. And they have 13 months. And so they, they don't operate on the same calendar as us. And they think they thought it was weird that the Americans cared so much about exact dates. They're like, I don't know how old the kid is somewhere, two, three, something like that. Just <laughs> Oh my gosh, Julie, you are blowing my mind right now to think that they're on a different year and that they don't really know people's birthdays. Like that's and some people do and some people don't, but especially children, if if they've gone through abandonment and they were found by someone, then there's no way to really know. And so they kind of just assign them, assign them a date. So wow. Okay. So how did it go when you brought the kids home? You know, I'm sure you knew a little bit of their story. Did you guys have a plan like how to acclimate them into your family, into America, into like a healthy kind of place? Yeah, I mean, everybody has plans for stuff before they've ever done that thing, right? So we're you're an expert, you've read all the books, you know all the things, you've talked to all the people, and then bam, you're at bam. <laughs> and then you realize, what? This is, wow, so much harder than I thought it would be, which it should be, right? These kids... Now, how long have you guys been married at this time when you bring the two kids home? Oh, gosh, not even three years. Okay, so you're just out of newlyweds. Yeah, we got married at 25. We brought the kids home when we were 28. Okay. We knew there would be issues behaviorally adapting, attaching to us, all that kind of stuff. You, you can only be prepared as you can be without actually doing it. But yeah, they were grieving because they didn't just lose their biological family, but they also lost their community. They also lost their friends at the child like care center that they had been living in for several months and their caregivers there. They also lost their country. They also lost their language. They pretty much lost everything except each other, which they have very opposite personalities. So they were kind of, yeah, they could give or take each other even. Um, but they, they lost everything but each other and they were six and two. So if you can even contemplate, if you have a, a biological child who is six or two or around those ages, if today somebody came and picked up your child and flew them to, you know, Germany or somewhere on the other side of the world and plopped them in a house with another family, how their brains would just be going haywire trying to figure out what the heck just happened to me. I don't understand what these people are saying. I don't like this food that I've never tried before. There's just so, they're so overstimulated by everything going on. Their whole world just got rocked. 
What had these kids up for adoption? They're, my kids' biological parents are deceased. Okay. So it was more l- leaving the family of, you know, grandparents and cousins and stuff like that who approved of the adoption because they did not have the financial resources to add more kids to their family or to take them on. Right. So that's the way, that's the route they decided to to move forward. So yeah, the kids were going haywire. And also I think um, something that's really, really important to mention when we are dealing with kids who have experienced trauma, they respond to their trauma very differently depending on their, even just their hardwiring and their temperament. Mm. So again, my children had been together their whole lives, their biological siblings. They came from the same place and came to the same place. But to my daughter, who is six, whose natural temperament is much more um, adventurous and she loves thrill and surprise and change and all that kind of stuff, the adoption was definitely traumatic, but it was also kind of fun because we're going on an airplane and I've never tried this before and I've never done this before and who are these people? So her response was very mixed. We could have fun with her. We could goof around with her because even though her brain was freaking out a little bit, she was still like, but this is still kind of exciting. Yeah. Whereas my son, who was two at the time, his natural temperament is very much security oriented. He likes schedule, routine. He wants to know what to expect. He does not like surprises. He does not like changes. So to that poor kid, the whole adoption experience was just traumatic. Mm. He... He, it just rocked his world as it would anybody's. And, and so they had very different responses to us and to, you know, their experience of being uprooted. Did you ever think, why are we doing this to that? Yeah, well, absolutely. And it's more, I think our heart behind it was we wanted to find children who didn't have parents and be their parents. Right. You know, that was kind of our heart behind it. Um, I know a lot of kids who are adopted whether it's international or locally foster care or not have living birth parents. And I was selfishly praying while we were waiting for our referral, waiting to be matched. I was selfishly praying that God would match us with kids who were true orphans who did not have living biological parents, because I didn't know how I would as a mother deal with that in my heart, knowing that, and especially with international adoptions, so many Parents make adoption plans for their kids because of poverty, right? right? And I, I thought I don't can. want them to be with them. Yeah, I'm like I'm not. I'm not getting into this game to try to, you know, be the American savior and take kids away from a poverty-stricken mother who loves them but just can't afford to feed them. Right. You know, that was not at all I desire, and so that's why I was praying, like, please give us kids who don't have parents because I don't know how I can mother knowing that there's a mother on the other side of the world wondering how her children are doing. Right. So, so now at the time when y'all adopted them, um, what types of behaviors were you seeing? You said they had very different reactions. What were some of their um, indicators? Like they've gone through a lot of trauma like they're having to deal with something that, and did you feel equipped to do it? Like, did you know what you were doing? Kind of just fumble through it at the beginning. 
but you know, they would not sleep also jet lag. They were getting used to a new, new part of the world, but you know, they'd be up all hours of the night. They wouldn't go to sleep unless we were physically holding or touching them and who can blame them, right? They just lost everything in their entire world. They don't know us that well, but they have more safety with us than anyone else. And so they wouldn't even go to sleep without, you know, my son had to be physically in our arms. My daughter had to be, you know, arm over the bed, touching someone. So a lot of that separation anxiety because they don't trust us yet. Right. That's why I talk about building trust in order to build attachment because they don't trust us yet. So how do they know that we know that when they wake up, we will still be there, but they don't trust us to still be there. You know, so it's putting in that time. It was probably almost six months before we could just put the kids to bed and then go to our room. For the first several months, it was, you know, we'd sit on the floor and they could be touching us while they were falling asleep. And then it eventually moved to my husband. I would take turns sitting in a rocking chair in the corner of their room. And we'd just read a book, wait for them to fall asleep, you know, having to stay in their room for them to fall asleep. And it took time to build that trust of them trusting that us that when they went to bed, we would still be there when they woke up. We'll get back to our conversation in just a moment, but do you ever feel like you are stuck in the roommate zone with your spouse when you're in that space, you're just getting by? We've been there. Um, you, You get to this place where you feel isolated and stuck thinking, man, we must be the only couple going through struggles with money, parenting, sex, all that. Well, I assure you, you are not the only couple. No. And we're in it with you together. So come join the legendary couples in our group on Facebook, legendarymarriage.com slash community, and come have the conversations that matter along with us. Now back to our show. Now you are a counselor for foster parents that are adopted either fostering or adopting kids that have gone through trauma. Tell me what attachment is and, you know, kind of what the goal is. Sure. Well, we are all built for attachment, right? From the moment we are born, even before we're born, we need to feel um, significant, important, special, and like somebody gives a rip about us. Mm -hmm. So I think that is the, one of the number one things that all children need, whether they've gone through hard stuff or not, is, you know, every kid needs at least one adult in their life who they feel like is crazy about them. You know, whether that's a teacher, a parent, a foster parent, whoever, you know, somebody's got to be crazy about them. And so building trust with a kid is largely how you end up building attachment with the kid. Mm -hmm. So I know lots of people who, when we brought home a six-year-old, they were very nervous for us about attachment issues. That you would never be able to attach. Sure. Yeah. Yep. And there's this myth that the younger you get a child, the easier it will be to build an attachment. And that's really not true at all because really? what it's really about is have we done it before? So what that means is my daughter was very attached to her biological mother before me. In fact, we call her, we refer to her as your first mom because she raised, I mean, she gave birth to my daughter and raised her for six years. She's not. So she, they, not she knew mom. them very well. Her parents. Yeah. Yeah. So she has memories. She has pictures. So we, we, you know, want to honor her. We talk about her. My daughter has pictures of her in her room. She knows she's allowed to ask us questions 
or admit that she is sad or any of those things. So because my daughter had been attached to her mother before me, yes, it was traumatizing losing that mother and getting a new one, but she had the necessary building blocks, right? I've done this before. I can do it again. So even though we were still dealing with maybe behavioral issues or whatever, she attached to me pretty quickly as new mom because she knew what that looked like and what that felt like. Whereas we had other friends who adopted maybe a 10 month old who had never had the opportunity to attach to a primary caregiver who they wrestled with for years trying to develop attachment with that child. And it is possible, but it's hard. And so it has so much more to do with have they, ha have they been able to build an attachment with somebody else rather than their age. So even people doing foster care, you know, the, I don't want to take in a 13 year old. That's scary. Um, but you might actually have more attachment issues with a two year old who has never had a stable, you know, attached caregiver. So it really matters more about attachment than it does age. Tell me about this. You told me earlier that it was a little bit counterintuitive how yeah. you care for kids that have gone through trauma. Yes, definitely. And this can be very hard for a lot of people to agree with or wrap their minds around. But I am a firm believer that parenting kids who have experienced trauma oftentimes feels very counterintuitive. It feels like you're doing the thing you shouldn't do, right? So kids who have experienced trauma, they need extra nurture. So I will give you, a, I will give you an example of a time that I failed <laughs> and how I could look back on that situation and see it very differently. Yes, so, and thank you for being vulnerable enough to share that because we've all, yes, we've we all, all. had our fair share of fail, yeah. mom fails. Yep. So when we had had our children for about a year, I had a baby because why not? Whoa, whoa. So I was at the grocery store with my three-year-old son who had only been with me for a year and my you know newborn, maybe two-month-old son in a car seat and I'm getting groceries and I'm on a mission. And you know, it's a day where I got things happening that evening. So I can't, I can't abandon my grocery shopping. Like I got to leave there with the stuff I need. Right. And my three-year-old son, uh, sees something that he wants a candy bar or something like that. I did one of those typical parenting moves where, Oh, if you behave, then you get this or don't reach out and grab stuff or whatever. Right. I don't remember exactly what happened. I just remember he was not happy about whatever I said no to. And so he threw one of those massive temper tantrums mm. in the grocery store. We have all seen one. We sure. have all likely been, you know, on the receiving end of one. I mean, this temper tantrum was so epic that a stranger bought me a $15 Starbucks gift card. Ah, like, <laughs> whoa, that's over the top. Like a stranger <laughs> sent over their son, like a 10 year old boy came up to me with this Starbucks card. And he said, my mom said to give this to you from one mom to another, you know, like oh, <laughs> bless your heart. It was an epic fit. Mm. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I am not going to give in to him and give him this candy bar that he's throwing a fit about. Right. Because then every time we go to the grocery store, 
he's going to think if he throws a fit, I'll give him a candy bar. Right. And that is just not how we do things. You know, like that was my mindset. What, what mom wouldn't think that. Right. And so I thought I was being the awesome mother. I was suffering the public humiliation in order to not, you know, build that trait into my son. Sure. But it was very traumatic for him and for me. And I also was worried about being even more judged because I was obviously a white mother with a black son who was, I had no control over in that moment. Mm -hmm. So I was very, but still I was stoic. I, I pushed the cart. I dragged him along. I put him in the cart because he wouldn't come with me. I paid for my groceries. I got out to the parking lot and then I couldn't get him in a seat. You know, they're doing that rigid back thing. Where oh they like, yeah. Where you got to try to elbow them in the gut so that they out. And out. So I'm like, I'm like, okay, whatever. I just, you know, st- let him walk around in the minivan. I sat in the driver's seat, got my tears out until everyone was calm. And then I could buckle him in and we can go home. And you're like, where's that Starbucks? Can I get it right now? Seriously. And <laughs> where's that Starbucks and a little something, something I can put in it. Yeah. Yeah. The Irish coffee. So now I, let me fast forward and reflect back on what was happening in that situation. Because in that situation, I was very much thinking about myself. What do I need to do as a mother? How do I need to respond to him? What do I need to, you know, I can't give in to this tantrum because I don't want to encourage the behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, how is this making me look to all these strangers? Sure. But here's what was actually going on because of what I now understand better about trauma. Um, my son had only been with me for about a year. He had experienced a massive trauma just by being uprooted from his entire life. And in a kid's mind, when you're at the grocery store, he does not know I have a list, I have recipes, I have plans. So in his mind, for the last hour, I've just been taking whatever the heck I want off of any shelf. Oh, I want this. I'm going to put that in the cart. Oh, I want this. I'm going to put that in the cart. And so he decided, well, for I have a free for all. Right. Right. And so he's thinking, well, I have a need, right? I'm hungry. And that candy bar looks really good. So I'm going to express to my mom what my need is, right? Which is that candy bar. Cause kids aren't thinking about nutrition. They aren't thinking right, about sure. that kind of stuff. I can look at him and say, I reject that candy bar is not a need. You know, you didn't uphold your end of the bargain, whatever. Um, And so he just watched me seemingly take whatever I want. And then in an effort to build trust with me, he expressed his need. I'm hungry. This is what I need. And I shut him down. Mm. Nope. But mom, I'm hungry. Nope. So again, he wasn't using those words. He didn't even likely realize that that is uh, what was happening behind that story. But what ultimately happened is that day was a breakdown in our trust relationship. My son backed away from me because what he learned is if I'm vulnerable and express my needs to this woman who is my mother now, she will turn me down. She will not provide for my need. So therefore I cannot trust her to take care of my needs when I express them. Right. And so that's what I'm talking about. Feeling so counterintuitive because if I could rewind and go back to that situation with my three-year-old son who had only been with for a year and I was still building an attachment relationship with, I would give him the candy bar in a heartbeat because Mm -hmm. I made it about something it wasn't about. It wasn't about a power of wills or whatever in his mind. He was just expressing a need and he needed his mom to meet it. 
Now I've had people listen to that story before and say, oh, but then, you know, I, I can't, I can't do that because then you'll have the whole temper tantrum candy bar, temper tantrum candy bar. And I also say, but things change. There's a time when you need to err on the side of extra nurture in everything that you do with the traumatized child you are trying to build an attachment with. But today that same son is 10 years old. We have a very firmly established mother son attached. He says, if he wants a candy bar, you say, bring your own one next time. If he screamed and yelled (laughs) at the grocery store about a candy bar today, I'd be like, um, no, I'm sorry. And you probably just lost computer privileges when you get home. So it's not a forever thing. It's recognizing in the moment that this is what my child. What's the thing behind the thing? Exactly. What's going on? Get outside of my own head, my own brain. Stop making it about me and figure out my child is throwing an epic temper tantrum in the grocery store. There's something going on in his head right now. And oftentimes anger, what's really behind it, right, is fear. So I needed to be able to recognize that my child who is freaking out is actually, there's something hard going on in his head right now. He's scared. He's afraid he's not going to have access to food because I just turned him down for that candy bar. That's why. And the reality was the world that they used to live in, you know, there wasn't like an HEB, a ton, tons of food on every corner, you know, it was a bit more scarce, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I was a real concern where you're Mm -hmm. like, whatever, there's like a million things here I could buy or eat everything in this card if I want to. Yeah. And, and I wasn't considering his history, his background, his trauma. Right. Right. And so it might've appeared like, oh, you're just coddling him if you hand him that candy bar. But the reality is the more that I can build trust with him and the more that he can trust me and the better attached we get, then you're in a safer grounds to have more like, you know, here's where I draw the line. Here's what's okay. Here's what's not okay. Do you find yourself dealing with your kids, your biological kids in a different way than you deal with your adopted kids as far as, I know you've had trauma. So for you, I would say yes to the candy bar. And for you, I would say no. Honestly, for the sake of not wanting my kids to hate each other or to pit their parents against, uh, you know, against each other. I think during those critical building of attachment and trust, you know, weeks, months, years, whatever, there off there oftentimes also needs to be a softening in that relationship with the biological child. And you can talk about things because I have foster parents ask me this question all the time when they have older biological kids. They're like, well, if we're going to take in foster kids and they have trauma and we're supposed to be extra nurturing and, you know, all this kind of stuff how does that relate with our older kids if we have a different set of rules for them? And honestly, I'm like, talk to them about it. You know, if your child is so used to, but mom reads me a book every night, but tonight she's off with, you know, screaming four-year-old is having a temper tantrum. This kid is ruining my life. You go to your child and you can say, you know what? I know that you and mommy read a book every night before bed. And that is such like one of my favorite times. And I'm so sorry to have to miss it tonight because so-and-so, you know, Johnny 
really needs me right now. But what I'd love to do is after breakfast tomorrow morning, if you and I can get 10 minutes on the couch alone and read that story, because I really don't want to miss this time with you. You know, you can talk to your biological children and help them understand in an age appropriate fashion that this other child in our home has experienced some hard things that luckily you haven't had to experience. And I'm not favoring them. They just need a different kind of parenting right now but I still want to, you know, stay connected with you. And I know you teach your foster parents to be a student of their child that's coming in. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that could be something that is really great for biological or foster or adopted kids. What, yeah. how do you become a student of your child? Absolutely. Well, it's, it's partially what I was talking about, about understanding their temperament, right? So my daughter was slightly excited by the adoption because she loves adventure, whereas my son was not. So, um, but even like my biological son, he's got a lot of emotions. He's got like all the emotions and they're all big and it's so wonderful. And I don't want him to ever stop being an emotional person. Right. Right. Um, so what I've realized is instead of my, because I've learned him and I know him when he is having a really big emotion, if I give him permission to experience that emotion, he moves through it quicker. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. It's so true. It's so true. Absolutely true. So if he is making, I'm a, you know, I'm a chill person. So I'm like, don't make a big deal out of things that aren't a big deal. So if if he stubs his toe or loses the remote control, they're in the wash, we'll get him tomorrow. (laughs) right? And he's making a big deal over it and he's sobbing. If I try to talk him out of his feelings, neither of us will get anywhere. You cannot talk people out of their feelings. But if I go to him and I get down on his level and I look in his eyes, I'm so sorry, buddy, you can't find your stuffy or the remote or that you skinned your toe. Do you need anything from me? How are you feeling? Then he very quickly kind of bucks up and is like... Yeah. Oh, it's okay. I'll be okay. You know, because I gave him permission to feel what he's feeling instead of trying to talk him out of it. Yeah. We'll get get nowhere with that. (laughs) You know what? This is so funny when you're talking about this, I'm actually thinking about my relationship with Justin, like mm -hmm. in this, (laughs) like the husband wife kind of thing, because yeah, this um, works in any relationship. Yeah. Like how many times does somebody bring something up and you're just like, that's not a big deal. Like, why are you making a big deal about this? And to them, it's a really big deal. And the more you try to negate it or fight it or blow it off or whatever, you're just making that just it puts work. A wedge. Yeah. That just puts a wedge in the relationship because instead of that, and we want that too, from, from other people to us, we want to feel empathy. We want to feel like someone is hearing us and validating us and then we don't hang on to things as long. But if somebody is trying to talk us out of how we feel or how we think. You're like, what am I just insignificant here? What the words that are coming out of my mouth right. are just nothing or what? And it doesn't make you feel closer to that person. So when we can validate our children's feelings and emotions, give them permission to experience them, which FYI will also help them be better humans when they are adults. Yeah. If they how to sit in and experience their emotions and then move forward from them rather than stuffing them. 
So that makes my son feel very close to me. I can see his eyes kind of like melt. And if you have many kids and they're all hardwired differently, yes, that can feel overwhelming at times. But in this, you know, lifespan of 80 or 90 years, if 20 of it is spent doing the hard work of loving your kids individually, how they need to be loved, that will be worth it, you know, <laughs> and then you can have 70 years to run off and, and do all and, the fun and stuff. And also you have to, I'm, I'm just thinking back to your story about the grocery store and like your the voices in your head were worried about the peanut gallery. The like, what are those other parents going to think of me? Like, they're going to think I'm a bad parent or, you know, all this other stuff. It's like, I know that if I give one child one treatment and another child another, there's going to be somebody that has something to say about it. There just is. And that's okay. They can, and we filter those, right? Because they don't know my kids. Yeah. Who are the people in your life who you will accept um, input from Mm. and everyone else we, we don't need it. You know, yeah. as I was walking out of that grocery store with my screaming toddler in the cart, an older lady made a loud comment as I walked by and she said, shame on the mother. Oh, Lord, help me. Uh-huh. I need more and than I Starbucks just, in this moment. Jesus, please. <laughs> and I just kept walking and I got out to the car. But you know what? Another lady chased me down. I'm serious. This was an epic tantrum. Another wow. lady chased me down in the parking lot and said, I heard what that lady said. You just ignore her. You're doing great. You just yeah. ignore her. So, so we get to decide what voices we listen to. If somebody does not really know me or my child or the dynamic between us, then I don't need to listen to their voice. Yeah. You know, if they, if, so we get to pick who we listen to. And also there may be some things that I do in parenting that other parents look at and think, eh, I wouldn't do that. Well, to each his own, you, you get to parent your kids the way you feel called and desired to do. And I get to do the same because ultimately we're all just trying to do our best, right? Right. We love our kids and we want to do the best for them. So I think another misconception out there is the kids need to learn how to buck up a little bit more and you don't want to over coddle. But what I've found is especially kids from trauma, the more you're able to soothe them, the more it kind of fills their tank so that they can start doing that for themselves. So it's not like, oh, if I go meet their every need, then they're just going to use me and never learn how to grow up. It's no, for a season while we're building our trust relationship, I will be that person who meets your need, who shows up when you're crying at 2 a.m. and snuggles with you instead of just yelling at you to go back to your bedroom because I'm tired. But then, you know, now my daughter who's in high school, she forgets something at home. Hmm. That's a bummer, honey. I'm definitely not going to drive it to your school because yes. <laughs> you'll never learn a lesson, you know? So that season has passed. Yep. <laughs> I love you and I sympathize that you don't have your, you know, binder or your knee pads, but I'm not going to bring them to you. <laughs> yeah. Try not to fall on your knees. And this is kind of our last thought because we'll kind of wrap up here. But in introducing your two oldest into your family and you're dealing with trauma and new kids and you've never had kids before. And like, what did that look like with the relationship between you and Alan, your husband? Um, How does that play out when you're giving, it seems like 110% to these kids? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's so many things because I have observed on many occasions 
that when you have a child who's hard to parent, it can really put a wedge in your marriage. Um, because that's hard, that's stressful and that's daily and it's in your home and it's hard, you know, you can't necessarily just escape it. So I think one thing that helped Alan and I is, you know, constantly reminding ourselves that we are on the same team. We want the same thing. We want to have a great family. Um, and so not making each other the enemy, not, um, I, I might've talked about this last time, but you know, when I was at home with these traumatized kids and the, there's no structure to our day and they can't handle much and they're freaking out and I'm exhausted and he comes home from work and I'm thinking, uh, lucky him, you know, he gets a break, he gets to go off to work. Um, but that would have done neither of us any good, sure. <laughs> you know, he can't, don't make me the enemy. I'm not making you the enemy. We came into this together. We are doing this together. And so, you know, finding ways to stay connected once our children felt stable enough, you know, we could leave them for an hour with my parents and go out to dinner or actually what we did because that first year we did live with my parents. Um, we'd put the kids to bed and when they were finally asleep, Alan and I would just go on a walk around the neighborhood because my parents were at the house in case they woke up. So we would every single night, we'd go on a walk after the kids went to bed because oh, we needed to breathe. We needed to stay connected. We needed to remind ourselves, you are not my enemy. We are a team. Um, And then talk through things. This is how I responded to this. What do you think? Um, I saw you do this, but I feel like maybe we should do this instead. What do you think? Just staying connected and intentional. Yeah. And I feel like you, I love how you said intentional because I feel like with your kids kind of being all over the place with like, some are adopted, some are biological, like, and just having four kids in general, like, um, (laughs) you guys really have to bring that level of intentionality of like, okay, what are we doing with, with this child or this situation, or this is coming up? Because I know, I know for Justin and I, sometimes it's just our personality difference or our wiring. We deal with, the kids in different ways from each other even. And sometimes that can be confusing to the kids. Like dad lets us do this. Why don't you let us do this? Or, and then I'm like, Oh wait, dad lets you do that. I am. I didn't (laughs) know we did that. (laughs) And a very good point with that, I think is also, you can earmark those things in your brain and then talk about your spouse with them later instead of like throwing your spouse under the bus in front of your kids. You know, because oh, they're letting me cocoa puffs for dinner, honey. Oh, right. that's super yeah. great. Oh, dad, let you have ice cream for breakfast. Well, dad obviously doesn't care about your health. No, we just, you move forward, you get the kids off to school. And then later that night, you're like, can you like, what's the, I would prefer if maybe we didn't do ice cream for breakfast. Like, can we talk through this or whatever? Because <laughs> children will experience more success in their relationship with you and with each other and with the world. Um, when they have that unified front, you don't have to agree with I will make you an ice cream Sunday (laughs) after the kids go to bed. If you don't feed them ice cream for breakfast anymore. (laughs) Right. Right. Or I noticed you did this and this discipline tactic, but I don't know. Can we, I don't know. Let's talk through that. Like have those conversations, do those things. But if you do those, um, you did this. I can't believe you did this. Why does dad let you sit in the front seat of the car? You're too young, whatever. Yeah. Uh, 
in front of the kids, then they're like, ooh, we might be able to get something out of this if mom and dad are disagreeing about this <laughs> issue. Oh my gosh, they're so devious. All right, Julie. Well, it was so great to have you back on the show and so much wisdom. And I feel like we could, we have, I have a list of like 10 questions that I didn't even get to, yeah. but um, it was so great. Um, if anybody is curious as to how to deal with some of the trauma after effects that they're seeing, do you have any resources or any place that you can point them at? Yeah, I think reading up on some different attachment methods. I know Karen Purvis is uh, deceased, but she was a big, amazing, helpful guru in this whole field. Okay. She has a book called The Connected Child. That's very good. And people can always connect with me if they go to stayforth.com. Um, they can connect with me there. I'm now doing kind of temperament personality type coaching. It's called unique design coaching with individuals or couples, helping them understand how they are wired and then because of my counseling background, okay, now in light of what you know, are there things from your past that you need to process differently in order to set yourself up for success in the future? So stayforth.com is a good way to, to find me. Great. We will include all of those links in our show notes. Julie, thanks so much for being on the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was great. Okay. So when we talk with couples, we often ask the question, Why'd you get married? How'd you know this was the one? And it a lot of times stumps people. Like, I don't know why I got married. Um, But I love something that she said in the episode. And that was, did you have someone who's just crazy about you? That's like your number one fan. And that's a question that she was referring to as kids. They ask that question about their parents. Are my parents crazy about me? And If you don't have that growing up, I think that's probably one of those things that you really lean into when you look for a spouse. Like, is this person crazy about me? Yeah. I think um, for boys and for girls in different ways that that they want to be the apple of the eye, the, Mm, the, the adored child. Yeah. All right. So here is our talk about it question. And now the Talk About It segment of the show. Each week we challenge you to set a time with your spouse to have a conversation that matters. <laughs> Was that ever thought going to be amusing to me? No. Probably All right. not. So growing up. And even if it does. You're still going to do it. Yeah. Too bad. Okay. So think back to when you were a kid. When you were growing up. Who were the adults that were just crazy about you? It may be your parents. It may be, you know, someone from church, whoever it was. Who were the Mm. adults that were crazy about you? And talk about it with your spouse. All right. Next week, we'll be sharing our confessions, favorite moments, and looking back on the last couple years of this show and uh, just talking about some of the moments that, that made us grow as a couple. I love it. Episode 99, and then it'll be one more to 100. It's like the Eve. It's the, it's the 100 Eve. 
That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Well, that's it for today's show. All right. As always, we're talking about the hot topics from the podcast and so much more over on our free community on Facebook. So come join the conversation at legendarymarriage.com slash community. You can find this episode and the show notes at legendarymarriage.com slash 098. Thanks for listening to the Legendary Marriage Podcast. This is Danielle and Justin reminding you... Don't settle for an ordinary marriage. Make yours legendary. Legendary.